You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 164 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Before we start this episode, I want to thank patron number 9, Peter S., for supporting the podcast. Yeah? You want to say something? Daddy! Daddy! Do you want to support this podcast? Yeah! Go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. If you become a patron, you'll be able to hear these episodes before everyone else, as well as access exclusive content. Join us at the round table of the Divine Mystery. Wow! Alchemy is about creating the stone, the so-called Philosopher's Stone. Half of the alchemical community considers this stone to be something that when you have it, you can transform any substance into gold and and or heal any ailment. The other half of the alchemical community view the stone as more a state of mind, like reaching nirvana. For many years now, I have viewed DMT as the stone, and that alchemy is simply an offspring of shamanism. This is not a view accepted that much, as far as I can tell, in the alchemical community. However, in this episode we are going to hear about some clues and maybe proof to why this view I have is perhaps correct. My guest today is author and Freemason P.D. Newman. So, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and uh, what you do? Uh, well, um, um, primarily, um, lately I've been an author, which this is my first book, uh, Alchemically Stoned. It's uh, my debut appearance as an author, but... Um, aside from that, what got me into writing is uh, Freemasonry. I became a Freemason <laughs> seven years ago, and uh, uh, prior to that, um, I had had extensive uh, experience with um, not just experience of psychedelics, but also the literature. I've, I've been an avid reader of psychedelic books and um uh, like I said, experimenting with them. And whenever I became a Mason, uh, I had kind of set aside psychedelic research and experimentation for a time. Um, but surprisingly, once I got inside the lodge and actually started experiencing the degrees, a lot of the symbols um, appeared to me to be indicative of some of those same um, entheogens. So, uh, in, as far as who I am, that's, uh, in this context, uh, a psychonaut, you might say, who, um, after getting involved with masonry, Rosicrucianism, um, alchemy, and the Western mystery tradition in general, uh, came to write a book about uh, entheogens, about psychedelics, and the ancient mysteries. Uh, 
principally Freemasonry. So what was it that attracted you to Freemasonry? Um, well, I, I, I had had one uh, incredibly intense psychedelic experience, and it led me to, um, I kind of felt like I was on my own out in the deep end with this stuff, and I wanted to undergo initiation and a rite of passage within something that was a little bit more accepted within my culture. And uh, I have a lot of family members uh, who were Freemasons on my side of the family and my wife's side of the family. Um, so that seemed the obvious route. And at the time, um, I had been reading a lot of uh, uh, Aleister Crowley and uh, Israel Regardi and... Uh, you know, mainly people from the Golden Dawn camp. Um, but uh, a lot of what they had to say, a lot of what uh, Blavatsky, um, Alice Bailey, a lot of what these people had to say um, really piqued my interest in Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism. So, uh, so yeah, I petitioned to join. I, I never really expected to get in, um, but I did, and, and it's been... Uh, a life-changing journey. It's really, it's really changed my my entire perspective on uh, on all of these things, on on the development of self, um, on the ancient mysteries, and and especially on uh, the 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 function of, of psychedelic compounds within an initiatory or magical setting. Did you have to have? Did you have to know somebody who was a Freemason and then get invited, or how did it work? Well, um, you you have to have two sponsors, so it's similar to converting to say Greek Orthodoxy or something. You, you have to have two sponsors, um, and those two sponsors they meet you. They say, "Hey, uh, I think this he's an okay person. Uh, I don't think he's." Uh, terrible for Freemasonry, and and you know the reason they do that is because they say Freemasonry makes good men better. Um, so one of the things they're looking for is to find out if you're a good man. Now, of course, that that's going to change with with the investigator as far as what they think a good man is. But um, but yeah, what they're looking for is to make sure that your morale and um, thinking and your interests are compatible with what the Masonic fraternity has to offer. And once that happens, there's a, uh, a vote within the lodge. Um, if one person votes no, you don't get in. But you do have the opportunity to petition again um, within one to six months. It differs depending on the jurisdiction. Um, but after you've been, as they say, blackballed, which means voted down um, three times, I don't think you're allowed to repetition any other lodges. Where I live, it works the same way because I was going to check out the Freemasonry here where I am. And I even got so far as getting the sponsors. But uh, with my day job, which is actually more like a night job, it didn't really, I mean, I would never be able to attend any meetings. Uh, so it I was see. quite futile in the end. Uh, but w- one issue here, where I, because Freemasonry is different all over the world, and generally you can have any faith 
and as long as you like believe in some sort of uh, um, great architect and it can be mm-hmm. Allah or Buddha or whatever but uh, where I live it has to be Christianity and Jesus Christ so you have to like swear allegiance or something to to Jesus you can't like do it to another god right well we have something similar um here in America uh, the three degrees of Freemasonry are open to a man of any faith, so long as he believes in the supreme being and in the immortality of the soul. The same goes for the Scottish Rite, the 33 degrees, or the 32 degrees of the Scottish Rite. The 33rd is honorary. You're not guaranteed to receive that one. But in the case of what's called the York Rite, which uh, in a lot of the early literature is referred to as the American Rite, uh, that's where you become a Knight Templar. And uh, the body that confers that grade, that degree, is called a commandery. And in order to join the commandery, you also have to be a Christian. Specifically, they say, they ask you the question, if you had to take up a sword in defense of a religion, would that religion be Christianity? And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I personally, I'm not a, I was a member, I went through those grades, but... Uh, morally, just don't agree with that. I, uh, I, I demitted from York right because of that specific um, question. And, you know, at the time, I kind of reasoned it out and said, well, you know, I, I, I do ascribe to Christianity and uh, in a sort of Gnostic, uh, while orthodox context. I, mean, I have Gnostic tendencies and I have orthodox tendencies. But on top of that, I wouldn't take up <laughs> the sword in defense of any religion. I, I just don't see uh, anything positive in that entire idea. So, so that pushed me away, in a, in a sense, from the Yorkite. But we do have that same Christian requirement. It's just not in all of masonry. I always think it's weird that Christians that talk about taking up the sword, when one of Jesus' famous quotes is that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. <laughs> yeah, he, he was, you know, uh, you take the Sermon on the Mount, uh, be the, you know, the, the peacemaker and um, being merciful and all these things. Uh, it's a, taking up a sword in any, you know, in any context seems to be contrary to what Jesus' message was, but then at the same time, he did say other things um I think there's one, and I might be misquoting it, but I believe the scripture says, uh, uh, you think I come to bring peace, but I come with fire and a sword. And uh, so there is a kind of an idea of uh, of uh, a destructive kind of element. We also saw that with the way he attacked the bankers and the temple. Um, but overall, when you look at the Beatitudes, uh, which I, I personally see as being the heart of the Christian method, the heart of the Christian message, yeah, the sword seems wholly alien. So, I know Rosicrucianism can be traced uh, not that far back into the past, but there's like organizations like Amork that claim to come all the way straight 
back to ancient Egypt, which I doubt, but uh, Freemasonry is, is much older than Rosicrucianism, right? And can it, how far can it be traced or, or before they be, well, before it becomes fuzzy? Masonry, as we know it, um, came about uh, in the uh, 1700s. Um, so, but that, that's masonry, uh, what we call speculative masonry. Prior to that, what they call operative masonry goes back much further with the Masonic guilds um, who met. Uh, where they were given permission to meet in secret for the purpose of preserving the mysteries of building. Um, and this was done to ensure that anyone who you would hire to build a house or a church was actually skilled in the art of building. So, you know, if they weren't, you run the risk of the edifice collapsing on the congregants, on the on the families. <laughs> so, in order to preserve um, these mysteries for actual Masons, the Masons were granted the right to meet in secret. And it wasn't until um, the philosopher and alchemist Elias Ashmole, it wasn't until he was initiated by the Guild that Freemasonry started initiating men who weren't as you say, operative masons, they're, they're not building anything physical. After that point, uh, what's, what's being built is more spiritual, uh, more on the uh, spiritual plane. <clears throat> but Rosicrucianism, yeah, it originates uh, with what they call the Rosicrucian Manifestos, um, and they appeared in, in the 17th century. And uh, it appears that in the early days, there really was no Rosicrucian order, that it really kind of just existed on paper. Uh, but uh, roughly a hundred years following the initial publication of the Rosicrucian Manifesto, an order surfaced in Germany uh, called their Ordens des Gold und Rosenkruiser, uh, which is the order of the gold and rosy cross. And um, this was founded by a man named... Uh, Herman Fitchtold, I believe, and he was a he was a Mason and a practicing alchemist, and he limited the order to master Masons, and uh, basically taught an alchemical interpretation of Masonic symbolism, and uh, that order, as I understand it, became so popular that um, it was essentially shut down. Uh, by Grand Lodge Freemasonry because so many members stopped attending Mason Masonic meetings and just attended the Golden Rosy Cross meeting. So it eventually, uh, like I said, was closed, officially closed. Um, <clears throat> but then later on in the uh, 19th century, uh, the the it was kind of reestablished by a group called SRIA. Uh, which is Sochietus Rosicruciana in Anglia. <clears throat> and it was this group that eventually gave way to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Um, so um, the Rosicrucian, any claims to, to Rosicrucianism are already a, a bit hairy because originally there, there appears to have been no real order. But, uh, but there, there are plenty of groups um, that popped up and established themselves and did their best to operate within a context that they considered Rosicrucian, which was essentially Christian mysticism, heavy leanings toward alchemy, um, and uh, uh, Kabbalah um, eventually became an, an essential, essential element. Um, 
So yeah, this the 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 beginning of Rosicrucianism actually predates Masonry uh, as a speculative order. Um, but uh, but yeah, Masonry itself as a uh, the speculative practice under the United Grand Lodge of England and the Premier Grand Lodge of England, um, both of those uh, would, on the other hand, predate Rosicrucianism as an actual uh, functioning order, if that makes sense. Do you think there's any operative Masons left? I mean, do architects and, and construction workers join these days? Oh, well, I'm, you know, men from all practices join, and there are definitely operative Masons uh, who become Freemasons simply out of tradition. But anyone, any professional bricklayer, uh, we might call an operative Mason. And there's also a branch of speculative Masonry that's called the Operative Masons that's been established uh, since the establishment of the Grand Lodge. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's still a thing we would call Operative Masonry um, within Masonry. But as far as a Masonic guild existing, it's actually operative that goes in and builds things. Um, no, I, I haven't seen anything like that, but who knows, there could be. I imagine that uh, operative Masons maybe, I mean, don't they have like a higher status somehow because they actually know how to do masonry as well? Um, well, the the thing is that there haven't been operative Masonic guilds in that sense um, since the establishment of speculative masonry. Um you know the the whole the the whole guild movement for any art kind of died out with the industrial revolution. So uh, once the industrial revolution happened, and uh, and along with that, printing presses, um, which printed you know made printed made public a lot of things that were kept secret in some of those guilds. There really became no reason to keep that information secret. So. Uh, as far as we know, the initiation ceremonies that we go through as Masons today uh, only very little resemble the early operative initiations. We know that we've retained a lot of elements, but in the early days, like for example today, we we have three degrees um, in what's called Blue Lodge Masonry. But in the early days, um, there was only one degree. Uh, I think it was in uh, um, the Mason's words by Robert Davis. He he points out there was just one degree. There was the Masonic initiation, and after that, uh, you were a member. And then after you know some time later, a second degree was added, and then even later, a third degree was added. So uh, we know what we do today um, differs widely from what what was being performed in the early days of of guild masonry, but. The spirit is still the same. Um, the underlying spirit of the order, which uh, you know, serves to what I like to say, and what um, Robert Davis in his book "Understanding Manhood in America," he says the same thing. But it's really, in a large sense, is about exposing a man to what you might call mature masculinity, um, with all of the virtues that that entails: uh, a, a, a high moral standard, um, a spiritual eye towards material um, phenomenon, 
Uh, all these these things go towards providing a man with something that could easily be missed without that rite of passage. And masonry, in its at its core, is really that it's a rite of passage um, into uh, that mature masculinity. And even though we use building symbols um, and don't actually build, uh, I think that you know that probably points more towards what we're talking about now, that, that what's being built is something ethereal, something unseen. It's it, as they say in, in the, uh, chapter of Royal Arch Masonry, that in one of the degrees, they say it's your character that's being built. So yeah, in a way it's, it's about providing a young man with the character to be a mature man in the future by application of these lessons through inculcation of what's taught, etc. So how is the view on on uh, drugs in masonry? Uh, because, I mean, if you have an interest in psychedelics, is that acceptable, or do you have to keep it quiet? Well, yeah, I, I didn't let anyone know when I petitioned that, that I was uh, into researching psychedelics. Um, but at the same time, when I joined, I wasn't really researching them. I had set them aside for a while um, just for the purpose of pursuing uh, Freemasonry and initiation within a context that wasn't so taboo or so just, like I said, in the deep end. Um, but once I became a Mason, uh, in the third degree specifically, I was presented with what in the degree nowadays is only a symbol, a sprig of acacia. Um, which acacia is a, a species of tree. There's some uh, thousand species of acacia of the genus, um, and some hundred of those contain large amounts of DMT, dimethyltryptamine, an extremely powerful psychoactive compound. And my experience with DMT prior to becoming a mason was from acacia. So when I was exposed to that acacia symbol, my ears immediately perked up and I felt, well, surely that this has no relation to DMT, but that's an interesting coincidence. And uh, as time went by, uh, I started reading every early Masonic ritual I could from different countries, and then finally stumbled upon Cagliostro's Egyptian Rite of Freemasonry, wherein he specifically has his candidates uh, drinking a concoction of acacia. And he tells them that uh, when they're drinking it, he says, what you're drinking is the philosopher's stone and the, the, the lapis philosophorum. And he said, it's been, he says, it's been prepared from the acacia, which is the primal matter. And uh, you being familiar with alchemy, uh, you, you know, the, the prima materia, the primal matter is the always unnamed mysterious substance that's found in nature from which through the alchemist's art can be prepared the lapis philosophorum, the philosopher's stone. So for the first time, uh, I've, I've got not only the acacia being used in a context other than a symbolic one, because they're actually drinking it, but I've also got a practicing alchemist, Cagliostro being a practicing alchemist, I've also got a practicing alchemist declaring outright what the prima materia is and what is prepared from it. And of course, when you extract, or in alchemical terminology, when you produce DMT from the acacia, what you get 
is uh, a salt, and, and it, which literally looks like tiny crystals, like a tiny rock. Um, so it's very much a stone, um, and also it's it's a salt. And um, you know, the the use of that language of salt uh, is, is, as you know, extremely prevalent in alchemy as well. So it was just really fortuitous discovery. And um, I ran this by. Uh, a man named Arturo de Hoyos, who's the grand archivist and grand historian of the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite, and asked him what he thought. And he said, well, that's really interesting. Um, I don't know what I think of it right now, but keep up the good work. And uh, not much time goes by. I get an email from him saying, hey, I'm translating uh, this ritual called, it's a Russian ritual, written by a man named Piotr Melissino, who was a practicing alchemist and friends with Cagliostro. And he says, I think you're onto something. I think he's talking about exactly what you're talking about. And when I looked at the Melissino ritual, he's saying the same thing, that Acacia is the primal matter, and that from it, using the alchemical art, you produce a stone, and that stone, when applied properly, um, gives one... Uh, a glimpse of the immortality of a soul. Um, so, so yeah, for the first time, what I what had just been kind of an interesting coincidence that I experienced in the lodge became really a, a heavy pursuit um, uh, investigation into was this actually what was going on? Are there any other you know clues that this was happening anywhere else? Was it happening in main happening in mainstream masonry in in the UK or in America? Um, and yeah, so those kind of questions and answers that led to uh, to my book. But wasn't the Egyptian rites by Cagliostro was never really adopted into any lodge or or how did that go? Oh no, when when he established it, it was actually very popular. Several had several initiates, several members. Um, he kind of shot himself in the foot uh, because he met at, at a, it was a really big lodge meeting in London, I think it was, and everyone who was anyone in Freemasonry was invited. And when it came his turn to talk, he basically stood up and said, regular Masonry is uh, is on the way out, that everyone needs to burn their minute books, burn their rituals, and adopt my ritual or be forever in the dark ages of masonry. And that kind of statement doesn't fly. <laughs> I think that that statement alone pretty much turned everyone against him and was the beginning of the downfall of his right. And we saw the same thing happen with Eliphaz uh, Levee, the famous um, occult author. When he became a Freemason and was initiated, uh, he stood up and said, I've come here to tell you the true mystery of all of your secrets, the true meanings of all Masonic symbolism, and proceeded to give them this discourse on Kabbalah, which, whether he was right or wrong or not, uh, no lodge wants to see a brand new initiate stand up and purport to know everything there is to know about Masonry. And that's kind of what Cagliostro did, even on a more grand scale. But while the Egyptian rite was active, uh, it was very much accepted. It wasn't a fringe Masonic 
thing. Um, it was just another Masonic rite you could join. Uh, it wasn't until afterwards um, he was charged with heresy that uh, his right was kind of officially shut down and unrecognized by uh, the Grand Lodge entities. Well, if Cagliostro somehow managed to get a dose of DMT, then that's how you would speak after having such an experience because you like you want to call CNN and like listen to this, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I truly believe that's what was going on with his ritual. I think that was what was going on with the Melusina ritual. Um, outside of that, my only other hint as to whether or not these substances played a role in mainstream masonry is the fact that in the earliest days of the master mason degree, there was no mention of acacia. There was only a mention of a, of something called cassia, which is a, a plant native to China that it's actually a, a form of cinnamon. Um, cassia cinnamonum, I think is the, the proper name, the botanical name. <laughs> but, um, it's somewhere along the line between uh, 1735 and 1740. Um, every lodge across the board changed their ritual from cassia to acacia. No one knows why they changed it. No one knows who's responsible for it. Um, so I said, well, if we're going to get an answer, uh, I said, I know why I think Melusino and Cagliostro were using Acacia, would that be the reason why mainstream masonry would have switched it in the first place? And of course, that's the answer. That's a question that I have just have not been able to answer because it's, the, the territory is too murky. Um, it, the, it wasn't recorded um, when it happened and by whom. Uh, I do have a suspicion who it might be, which was the uh, third grand master of the premier Grand Lodge of England, a man named Faisal Goulier. And like it, I know that whoever made the change was responsible for it would have had to been a powerful in masonry, and they would have had to be knowledgeable in alchemy because we're talking about a chemical process to get this substance out of a KC in the first place. And it just so happens that Desaguliers. Not only do we know that he made significant changes to the master mason degree, um, but. Like I said, A, he was powerful in masonry, being the third grand master of the premier grand lodge. And B, um, we know that he was not only a practicing alchemist, he was also research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton in the Royal Society. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, some papers surfaced um, belonging to Newton, written in his own hand, which was... Uh, copies of alchemical manuscripts that he had made on how to produce the philosopher's stone. And there was always speculation that Newton was a practicing alchemist, but this was really the first time that we had actual proof. Um, so yeah, these were guys that were practicing alchemy, that were knowledgeable in alchemy. Um, so yeah, Desaguliers, I think, would be the best candidate, uh, but that's just my speculation. I, I, uh, you know, To go any further would be overstepping my, my bounds as a researcher. I don't know how familiar you are with the extraction process of DMT, but for me, having done it, it's quite, I mean, it feels very modern and chemistry and all these techniques, but do you think they were able to do that extraction like three, four hundred years ago, 
or can can you get a DMT trip from acacia in some other way than extracting the DMT? Oh, I definitely think they could have done it. I mean, when you're extracting uh, DMT from acacia, you know, really the process is <laughs> to um, put put the uh, the plant matter into a solution, uh, an acidic solution. You can use hydrochloric acid these days, but then, I mean, there were plenty of other acidic compounds to get the proper pH. And, uh, you, you know, when you're using that technique, you need a, a nonpolar solvent, which is naphtha is what's commonly used, which is lighter fluid. <laughs> and the lighter fluid, um, uh, once the acidic compound, the acidic fluid has unhooked the alkaloids from the plant matter, you use that nonpolar solvent to pull those alkaloids out um, of the original solution and into the second. And then it's just a simple process of, of evap- evaporation. Um, but if you were going to do this with alchemy, um, there's a book called Mutus Liber, the mute book that's uh, a detailed process of how to produce uh, an elixir using alchemy. And um, but essentially what they're doing is they're calcinating wood um, in this tradition. I, I can't remember. I wish I could remember the commentator that I read on this book that led me to this conclusion. I'll have to look that up and try and get it back to you. But essentially what he says is the, the first thing is to calcinate wood, which is to burn it until it's a white ash. And then this ash, once taken, uh, is spread out on a, uh, a dish, a glass dish, and set overnight in the grass um, about two inches off the ground. So it would be set on little wooden pegs or whatnot about two inches off the ground and left overnight to acquire dew. Once it acquires dew, um, this becomes an extremely caustic fluid that's called oleum solace or oil of the sun. Um, and this would be the original fluid uh, by which to unhook those alkaloids. And, of course, you'd need something else to pull it out. And uh, there's two different two different ways you could do that. One is with wine and, or, or cognac, and another is with uh, oil, uh, which takes the place of that nonpolar solvent. Um, I've also read a mixture of, of wine and oil. Um, to help pull it out. Um, the J. Eric Laporte, he's actually done this. He's a practicing alchemist that has a retreat, um, I believe it's in Thailand, where he offers alchemically produced DMT to um, uh, his, his uh, what's the word, his customers, I guess you'd, you'd call them his clients. Um, but he, he pulls the DMT out from this oleum solace using oil and then out from the oil using wine and it's that wine that's eventually drunk and he does this without an MAOI um, he, he uh, you know originally it was thought that you had to have an MAOI to make DMT orally active but he's he's learned that you can actually overwhelm the monoline oxidase in the gut with overdosing on DMT so basically giving so much that you occupy all the monoamine oxidase in the gut, and then some eventually gets through. 
and that's how he's doing it. He he recently um, published two books, um, Keys to the Kingdom of Alchemy and, and one other, uh, which I highly recommend. And you can also find um, his work on academia.edu where he discusses uh, the same technique I'm talking to you about right now, Eric J. Laporte. But so we do, we definitely know that it could be produced um, in a what you might call a primitive alchemical setting uh, without necessitating things like hydrochloric acid and, and naphtha. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think it was possible. I, I know it's possible. So then the only impossible thing is how you would figure out to do it. Right. That's exactly right. And and as you, I'm sure you know, um, alchemy was largely a DIY process, a do-it-yourself process. You know, there were plenty of alchemical manuscripts, but they were written in such code, even if you did have a teacher, it there's no guarantee that that teacher even speaks that same language. All these alchemists had their own kind of approach to the mystery and i think for some alchemists the solution was one one thing and i think for others it was another and i think specifically for um these masonic alchemists the solution became acacia um now why and how it that is a total mystery but you know it's equally mysterious is how um how the amazonians in the in the amazon basin out of out of 40,000 plant species, how they could find uh, two that work together to produce ayahuasca. You know, the odds are something like one in 800 million. So it's that kind of a mystery. (laughs) that It just seems mind-boggling that it could even have been stumbled upon, but yet here we are. Are there any other things in Freemasonry that links to psychedelics apart from this branch that you get when you initiate it? There, there are symbols um, that point back to different psychedelics, but they're not ones that I think were actually used by masonry. Uh, uh, what I think the case is here is uh, masonry is a is a, a sort of repository for all of the ancient mystery traditions that came before it. You can find elements of uh, different mystery schools within it, and. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Watson, Hoffman, and Ruck's book, The Road to Eleusis, where they uh, essentially come to the conclusion that the Tikion beverage, the the sacrament at the heart of the Eleusinian mysteries, was a ergot-infested rye, a beverage made with ergot-infested rye. This is how they were able to give thousands of people at once um, a vision all at the same time that left them all completely dumbfounded as to what had happened. Um, so, for example, we know that masonry borrowed a lot of symbols from the Eleusinian mysteries. Uh, and I think in that borrowing, um, symbols were inadvertently borrowed that pointed directly back to that ergot infested rye. We, it shows up specifically in the second degree and the fellowcraft degree. But like I said, I don't think Freemasons were using ergot-infested rye in an infigenic context, but the symbol appears because the symbols were borrowed from a culture, from a tradition that did use it. Um, And as for Amanita muscaria mushrooms, uh, there's once you get into the 
Knight Templar ritual in Scottish Rite, it would be the Knight Kadosh degree, the 30th degree. Um, there are clear indications to me of Eridomuscaria mushrooms. Now, I don't think that Mason were using Eridomuscaria mushrooms, but I think because they borrowed from cultures, uh, borrowed symbols that appear in that degree from cultures that were, such as uh, the rites of Mithras and um, some of the symbols from the Knights Templar that were inherited from the East. Uh, I think that the symbolism which points back to Enrita Muscaria uh, is present. Um, but like I said, that's a different case. With the DMT, we actually know that you know there were some Masons using the Acacia for its DMT. Uh, but the other, I think, is just a, a, a simple fact of them having borrowed the symbol and not actually knowing what it meant uh, or applying another meaning to it once they borrowed it. What about the checkered board? I mean, in in DMT visions, uh, you usually have a sort of, I call it the wallpaper of the visionary realm, is quite checkered or like a grid system. Oh, definitely, definitely. And that's not something I mentioned in my book, um, but I'm glad you bring that up. All of my DMT experiences have been characterized by that. And I always describe it as... uh, um, like a circus tent, which has that same kind of checkered appearance, or I've described it in the past as uh, Harlequin's dress. You know, Harlequin, the famous Picasso picture of Harlequin with the diamond checks on his clothes, uh, is precisely what what's in, what I always encounter in the checkered pavement. That's is what it's called in Freemasonry, the black and white flooring. Um, certainly has that. Uh, has that uh, that effect? <clears throat> I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of like the cosmic joke that many people who do psychedelics might uh, uh, get a sense of that you know you shouldn't take anything seriously and and uh, everything is a joke. Not meaning that it's not meaningful, but that it's some sort of like cosmic trickster. And when you, particularly with DMT, when you use that you see these jokers because i also have seen these beings that are in the realm or are in the archetype of like a, a joker or harlequin or that kind mm-hmm. of vibe yeah definitely definitely the, the the entities that appear have a certain mischievous air about them uh, and mckenna was always quick to note that um and uh, you know when you think about alchemy itself, at the heart of alchemy was one figure over and over, and that was Hermes, Mercury. And Mercury is, in a large sense, a trickster deity. You know, whenever you talk about the function of Mercury in the alchemical work, Mercury is the one that that screws the alchemist up. He's the one that introduces problems that you didn't see, that makes the that makes the experiment or the operation not work. Um, so there's, in, you know, he he's definitely prevalent, and I mean, I don't know of an alchemical tradition that doesn't make special mention or notice of Hermes or Mercury or uh, 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 Trismegistus uh, in all of his different forms. But but yeah, he's got that same trickster element, and you know that may have something to do with 
with the, the predominance of those trickster entities. Uh, you know, McKenna called them self-transforming machine elves. And uh, I, I see them as, you know, they, there's, they kind of, uh, they kind of had the vibe of like carnival folk, you know, like you've gone to this, this cosmic carnival, uh, where all of the people who run the carnival, all the carnies are these little magical, mischievous, uh, trickster entities that, uh, want nothing but your attention. You know, they really, that's another sense you get is that they really want you to pay attention, really want you to take note of what's happening. Um, and maybe it, maybe it does have to do with just recognition of that cosmic joke you know, that, that's a hallmark of a lot of different psychedelic experiences that, you know, life is so intense and uh, so much of a struggle. And then once once the veil is rent and you're really on the other side and in that engaging state, you realize that it's all for fun. You know, it's all been, even the, harsh, the hardship is all, you know, the punchline and something that's just too grand to see uh, once you're, when you're the small guy, but once that, 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 veil is lifted, that eyes open, you know, it becomes something just vastly hilarious and incredibly enjoyable. Also, it's, it's quite a trickster thing to make DMT because I've done it a few times and I've done the process exactly the same way and sometimes it doesn't form any crystals, you know, it's like it, it forms right. it when it wants to. Right, and that would be that mercurial element that, you know, that's mercury fucking up your operation, <laughs> making it not work in the in the terminology of the early alchemists. He, he showed his face. Yeah, and one time when it really failed was when I was making it not for me, but for, for uh, a group of friends. And it mm -hmm. almost like it did that because, like, I don't know, they should be able to make it themselves before they get it, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a rite of passage. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna be responsible enough to experience the compound, you know, I, I think it's it's important to be responsible enough to know the laws uh, that you're breaking. I think it's important to be responsible enough to know what goes into it. Um, you know, the the caustic fluids used, the compounds, uh, you know, all that stuff is. Uh, there's a responsibility to it. And, yeah, I think there's something to that. There might also be something to do with the karma of it. You know, I, I myself don't, uh, don't give entheogens to anyone. I, I just, <laughs> I feel like that's asking for too much. If they're supposed to find it, they'll find it. But I try not to be that guy that ever exposes anyone to it because I've, I've had so many, you know, in my younger years, I had so many, uh, negative repercussions from that, you know, from, uh, for example, from shadowing, sh shattering someone's worldview, you know, someone so content and to not question reality, um, to, to give ENT to, to someone that's just perfectly content with their experience of reality and have that experience shattered right in front of them, uh, you know, I think there's negative repercussions that come along with that. So maybe, you know, maybe those people weren't ready for it. 
Yeah, that's interesting, and and it's uh, it's like a thing you 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 know it's you can watch watch a nasty YouTube film and you can remember it, but you can't forget it eventually. But the DMT trip, you know, it's like once you've gone down that rabbit hole, it's over. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. You can't undo it. it. it, it <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's the thing about it is, you know, let's say I gave you a balloon with a chemical in it to inhale, and it just made cartoons, funny cartoons in front of your face. You would be content to just sit there and say, oh, well, this is the effect of this drug, and there would be no reality to it. There would just be you enjoying this cartoon in the air from a chemical I gave you. But the thing with DMT is it is terrifyingly real. It's like, it's the realest of the real. It's, uh, you know, what's happening in front of you. You can't just say, Oh, well, I'm on DMT and this is a result of the drug because it's nothing you can comprehend. It's something so outside of, uh, the realm of normal waking experience, and yet you're experiencing it. You're not watching it. You know, DMT, that's what I like to remind people. It's not, even though it's a visual experience, it's not just something you watch. It's something that happens to you, you know, and you're smack dab in the middle of something that is just so hard to describe and even process that you you are just really i am just gripped with the feeling that holy fucking cow this is this is real this isn't a hallucination this this is opening something up that uh you know that i am i that not only am i faced with but it's faced with me you know and that's always the sensation i get is that it's it there's it's a two-way process it, um you know, there's always this the 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 sensation of another presence of something else there. You know, whether it's those mischievous elves or whether it's uh, this goddess figure I like to call the teacher that shows up a lot in my experiences. You know, it's a real confrontation, and it, I mean, it's not something you can just write off like you could with say, you know, pretty cartoons in the air. Terence McKenna he used to say that uh, shamanism with, uh, without psychedelics is not real shamanism. Do you think that maybe uh, f- Masonic rituals without psychedelics might not be the true Masonic ritual that they forgot that part? Well, no, I you know like we said before the switch to Casia came around, there were already Masonic rituals using Cassia. Um, so if the psychedelics were used, it was added to an already pre-existing um, uh, set of rituals. So I know, you know, Mercia Iliad, in his book, Shamanism, he argued that the use of drugs was a degradation of shamanism. It wasn't the rule. And McKen always disagreed with that and said, you know, um, drugs are what make it real. But um, to say that it's not like that other forms of shamanism aren't valid. Uh, let's look at it this way. Uh, if a shaman used ayahuasca, uh, used DMT in a ritual, and then went through the motions he was taught because he was actually seeing these entities um, and, and went through the cleansing um, rituals to cleanse negative, the negative entities from a patient, 
as long as those same motions are gone through by a shaman that isn't on the drug, it's arguable that he'd still achieve the same end, the same result with his patient, if those actions did anything at all and existed anywhere but in his own mind. Um, and in the case of masonry, um, you know, the ritual itself is so rich with symbols that communicate with uh, the unconscious mind, with the sort of prelingual part of the brain, um, that it, it already hits you on such a deep level, and it feels like it activates parts of the mind that were otherwise dormant. Uh, that's the sensation I had when going through the three degrees. Uh, yeah, there's, I, I definitely think there's something to rites of passage, ritualistic rites of passage, uh, outside of entheogen use. But I also think that entheogen use added to it, or even alone, is equally, if not more, powerful. And another distinction needs to be made that I make in the book, point that I make in the book is that, uh, you know, there, there are really two different types of initiation. There's formal initiation and there's actual initiation. Um, a formal initiation is, is the formal ceremony that you go through. But the actual initiation that should come from it is a change in consciousness, a change in perception. Now, there's no guarantee that the formal initiation will ever lead to actual initiation in that sense, in the sense that your consciousness is eventually expanded by the application of those symbols and lessons. So, you know, the problem for initiators is how do we ensure that this change of consciousness takes place in and at the same moment as the formal initiation? And the answer is psychedelics. That's the answer that, you know, is arrived at it, for example, with the Eleusinian Mysteries. You know, the ritual is one thing. The psychedelics are another thing. You put them together and you get this, you know, the double whammy result. Um, Do you think there's yeah. any possibility that maybe when the Eleusinian Mysteries uh, stopped existing and died away that it somehow continued to live and transformed into the Freemasonry order somehow? Or is that, I'm just widely speculating. That's, that's, one, of the, that's one of the speculations of uh, a researcher named Mark Stallman. He's kind of, you know, interviewed all the key players in the early days of uh, LSD, which is, LSD is what's the psychedelic compound that's prepared from ergot. And um, his suspicion is that, yeah, LSD... Uh, ergot, we should say, because it wasn't LSD until Hoffman, just, uh, you know, worked with it again in uh, 1943, I think it was, uh, maybe earlier. But um, yeah, he believes that certain people who were aware of it kept the secret and, you know, essentially formed a monastic order that studied it, which would be the Order of St. Anthony, which was a, a group of monks that uh, studied and treated what they called St. Anthony's Fire, which was ergot poisoning, which was a you know, pretty fairly common problem, people eating ergot-infested grains, breads. Um, so yeah, he believed that it, it, it continued through those people, through those uh, guys, and eventually, uh, according to, uh, I think it's Harmon, a man named Harmon, um, in an interview he gave, said that, you know, Albert Hoffman didn't just stumble upon 
uh, LSD. According to this guy, uh, he was a member of an anthroposophical uh, order that followed the teachings of Rudolf Steiner. And during the Cold War, they were trying to find some drug that they could give everyone to end war. And according to him, they had found some 30 compounds uh, that all had this entheogenic property. And the one that was their golden boy that they thought, yeah, this this one should do it, was LSD. And that the entire story of Albert Hoffman accidentally dosing himself on LSD and, you know, the famous bicycle trip uh, three days later, all of this, they according to him, was a, a concocted um, as a way to present LSD to the world and not expose the fact that these guys were all already, you know, researching psychedelic compounds like mescaline and psilocybin and, uh, you know, who knows what else. Like you said, there were 30 compounds. And, you know, that sounds like it's kind of outrageous. But if you, there's a paper written by Alan Piper about a, uh, a book called St. Peter's Snow. And this book came out um, around the same time as LSD was discovered, but before. It was, I want to say, maybe three years before Albert Hoffman went public with his LSD discovery. It was written by a man named Leo Perutz. And St. Peter's Snow is essentially this mildew fungus that grows on wheat that is eventually uh, this uh, aristocrat has it put in the water supply of this town um, in order to to cause uh, like a, a reforming of the Eleusinian mysteries. And he was going to be king of this new Eleusinia, sort of. Uh, so, you know, the, the real trouble with the paper, what he's trying to get at is how could this man have known you know, several years prior to Hoffman's official announcement of this drug, how could he have known the details, not just that it's a fungus, but that it grows on rye, that it also had some tie to the Ellisonian mysteries, which, uh, like we talked about earlier with um, Hoffman, Wasson, and Rux with the road to Elusive. So, uh, so yeah, there's definitely a, a line of research that's trying to trace um, you know, where, where this ergot Ergot knowledge went once the Hallucinian Mysteries were shut down because surely it didn't just go away. So if people want to read your book or do you have a website or where can they buy the book? Um, the book is uh, it's available on Amazon.com. It's available on Barnes & Noble. Um, it's also available at my publisher's website, which is called The Laudable Pursuit. And... Uh, you know, anyone who wants to keep up with um, with articles from me, interviews, uh, talking dates, reviews, etc., um, feel free to follow my, my Facebook presence. It's Alchemically Stoned by P.D. Newman uh, is the name of the Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the book's available at all the major uh, sellers. And uh, anyone who wants um, signed copies can get in touch with me directly through Uh, my Facebook page, and I'm glad to send those out. Cool. Well, it was very interesting to talk to you about these topics, and so uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you so much, Alex. It's been a real pleasure. You asked a lot of great questions, and I think we covered a lot of uh, territory that I actually haven't touched upon in previous interviews. 
Make sure you get the book Alchemically Stoned, The Psychedelic Secret of Freemasonry by P.D. Newman. I will also post links to his Facebook page in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. I don't know about you, but this was for me one of the most interesting discussions I've had so far in this podcast series. Now, stand up and move your ass to the track Aztec from the album Mayatastic by Nameless Archive. Go to namelessarchive.com if you want to hear more. And please leave a nice review on iTunes, become a patron and like the podcast in social media. And if you have any questions that you want me to discuss in future podcast episodes, just send them in. Contact form can be found on naturalbornalchemist.com. Next Sunday, I'm going to be talking about trips. Freedom is in the mind.